Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. You can find out a little bit more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the learnings, stories, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Kevin Bethune. Kevin is the founder and chief creative officer of Dreams Design and Life, a strategic design consultancy that helps companies like PepsiCo, Nike, and Berkshire Hathaway to bring a multidisciplinary, human-centered, and innovation-focused lens to business. If you're thinking, that sounds pretty fancy, you'd be right, and Kevin has certainly earned every bit of that fanciness. Graduating from Notre Dame with a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering, Kevin started his career in the nuclear energy industry at Westinghouse Electric, where he became closely acquainted with the ins and outs of nuclear reactors. I kid you not, hazmat suits and everything. We're certainly going to spend some time talking about that. Seeking to develop his understanding of business, Kevin left Westinghouse and went to Carnegie Mellon University, where he was awarded an MBA, along with the Manufacturing Entrepreneur of the Year Award and Enterprise Award with Special Distinction. Kevin then joined Nike, the iconic global sportswear brand, in a business capacity. However, his curiosity soon led him to footwear design, where... Thanks to the mentorship of Dwayne Edwards, then Nike's head footwear designer, he would design the record-breaking Air Jordan Fusion 8 shoe. Again, seeking new horizons and to solidify his creative foundation, Kevin left Nike for a Master of Science in Industrial Design at the prestigious Art Center College of Design, where he now serves on the Board of Trustees. Kevin is also the board chair for the Design Management Institute. In his most recent chapters, Kevin was a co-founder of the Strategic Design and Innovation Capabilities at two, not just one, two top-tier management consulting firms, Booz & Co. and the Boston Consulting Group, also known as BCG. As Vice President of Strategic Design at BCG Digital Ventures, he led a large team of designers who influenced and shaped every corporate venture that emerged from the incubator. In 2018, Kevin left BCG to carve his own path under the banner Dreams Design and Life. His first book, Reimagining Design, Unlocking Strategic Innovation, was published by the MIT Press in March, with the foreword written by his good friend, the legendary technologist and designer, Dr. John Maeda. And now he's here with me today for this conversation on Brave UX. Kevin, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Brendan. Really appreciate you having me. Oh, it's such a such a pleasure to have you here, Kevin. And as we were talking about off air, we had recently spoken together at, at Design at Scale, uh, put on by Rosenfeld Media, and we didn't actually get a chance to connect in person like we are doing now. So it is really great to have you here. And I have some serious doubts that we're actually going to be able to get through all of the amazing <laughs> things that you've done and that you are still doing. But we'll see how we go. <laughs> appreciate your kindness. Thank you. Kevin, one of the things that I discovered about you when I was preparing was that you, at least in the past, have been a big fan of endurance running. And that Mm. used to be a passion of mine as well, not so much now since I've become a father. But I was curious, how many miles have you clocked in your shoes this week? 
<laughs> uh, on average, every week, I, I'm doing about 20 to 25 miles. So not as much as I used to in my youth, but it, I, I needed every morning to relieve stress and just sort of burn off the anticipation for the day. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense now because, Kevin, you are one of the most calm people that I think I've come across. You just have this presence that everything is at ease. So to know that uh, part of that can be attributed to your running is, uh, is just it's a little light bulb that's gone off for me. So, Kevin, I know that running is clearly it's been a passion of yours. You're still doing far, far many more miles than, than I am, actually. I feel, I, feel, I feel quite embarrassed. I don't think I'm, uh, I'm at the right table here. And I know at, at Art Centre, you, part of your final project or what you were working on there with your masters was a, a device uh, that was a wearable that was for runners and that it was to do with helping runners stay in tune with flow. What was the, was that a self-motivated project? Like, how did that come to be? Yeah, I think so. I, when I came to Art Center College of Design after my time at Nike, I sort of told myself, you know what, I'm not going to just go back to like athletic topics. I'm going to try to keep my options open and keep my horizons expanded. And by the time, though, you are who you are. And by the time the thesis rolled around, I, I just knew that my passions were sort of in the space of serving human potential, unlocking human capability, and from my time in Nike, just fully appreciating that sport is definitely one of those expressions of this, the purest form of human potential. And because I loved running so much, it's always been my outlet for relieving stress, feeling the endorphins. I, I told myself, like, how could I help running communities in general? And this is around the time where wearables were starting to come on the scene. I, I observed sort of Nike in the fuel band with that exercise or the rise of Fitbit and these kind of things. And this notion of quantified self sort of was part of the zeitgeist for all things wearables. But again, I, I found myself still running and wearing in, uh, watches or carrying my phone. And it wasn't necessarily the most intuitive digital experience. It actually interrupted my flow of the run versus helping me actually stay in flow. I totally know what you mean. Having used to used to run with a an armband with my with my big phone on there, and you'd sort of be running <laughs> along, and you'd have to twist your shoulder to try and see what was going on, and then your gait all go, right. goes goes terrible. Yeah, that's right, exactly right. Or crossing traffic and the danger of that. So yeah. I, I said, like, what what could be a more intuitive set of affordances, which led to the device and the way to really streamline that experience. Mm. And being centered around flowing, like how often. In a regular week, do you reckon you'd actually hit that flow state in your run? Uh, uh, if I'm lucky, probably one or two days out of yeah. the week where I feel, wow, that was a good run. Yeah. For people that aren't long-distance runners and haven't experienced that high, it is it is like, for, for me anyway, it's like running on on clouds. You, everything just, everything aligns in your body. You you can dial up and down your pace at will. You actually, you feel as close to, to a God, as I can possibly imagine you would feel when you hit that, that sort of spot. Is that what that's been like for you too? Uh, totally, totally. Yeah. There was a runner's world article several years ago that talked about a runner seeing the seven golden cheetahs on the horizon. <laughs> it was sort of like this <laughs> heavenly moment where you're just one with the cheetahs running on the clouds. <laughs> so that, that vision comes to mind anytime I hit flow in my run. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Just before we'll, we'll come back to your time at Art Center, but before we do that, I really wanted to touch on a number of a number of things. But your one of them, which is your journey to design and in design, which is truly, really, it's one of a kind. I know you, you could say that about many people, but your your journey is particularly special. As I've mentioned in your introduction, you've just written a book 
called Reimagining Design, Unlocking Strategic Innovation, published by MIT Press. This book touches on that journey, and it's not quite what you expected, as far as I understand, when you first started. Who is this book for, and what what is it that it will give them? No, it's a really good question. And honestly, um, when the idea of writing a book came to fruition, it had come from those recent career chapters of standing up design and innovation capabilities, especially in spaces that hadn't understood the power of creative problem solving. So it could have easily been another book on design business integration or another uh, book that adds to the canon of design thinking, all worthwhile pursuits. There's still plenty of books to write in those two areas. But I think when I started writing, we were wrestling with all things pandemic and the compounding pandemics of social justice sort of awareness and climate change and all these compounding things were happening at the same time where I couldn't help connect the overt stuff we were seeing in the media every day to a lot of the covert realities that we were experiencing every day in our personal and professional lives. And I found myself sort of going there. I couldn't, I couldn't help but go there to that personal lived experience, whether it's in the workplace or navigating my community and unpacking that. I found myself, the writing process was a cathartic act of unpacking a lot of that stuff that had built up over time. That stuff that had built up over time and being in that space of the pandemic and, and with the um, with the unrest that was occurring, particularly in America, hopefully I'm not using the wrong term here, but the systemic oppression and racism that had been directed towards the black population for as long as the black population has been in America. How did you know just how far to go with that? You know, it sounds like you were riding a, a bit of a wave of your own lived experience, a bit of emotion, like what sort of checks and balances did you have in place? Like, did you work with someone like like John, um, John Mader on, on that sort of role of just checking in and, and um, helping you to refine the, the message and how you were telling that story? You know, it's, it's an interesting question. Upon reflection, there were definitely uh, a few author confidants that I, I felt like I could go to. They, they created safe spaces for me. I was so honored that John, my mentor, my friend, allowed me to come into his Simplicity series and write the 10th book in the series. And so I, my, my wherewithal to like not want to bug John was sort of top of mind. So I didn't go to him for consistent checks and balances. I wanted him to like the final work and feel comfortable writing the foreword. And I'm grateful that he did that. But actually, Kat Holmes, who wrote the previous book in the series, Mismatch, she volunteered to be my author confidant, someone I could go to and just share like rough balls of clay, get impressions. And she was actually the first voice of encouragement to say, you know what, you're presenting a perspective here that is rich with practitioner frameworks and information to help people, help designers. But you are writing in a way that can shine a new light on design for all types of people. And ultimately, you know, when I saw how the book was making traction in the market and watching people post excerpts, I realized that the book is actually functioning like a mirror for anyone that's creatively curious, irregardless of background. You don't have to be a designer to benefit from the book. Uh, it's for students. It's for business folks, technologists. If you're creatively curious and are wrestling with those curiosities, my hope is that my book can be that mirror to help you inform your individual trajectory as well as how you might influence your organization as well. You mentioned safe spaces and how you, know, you have that author confident that provides that role to you. And you also mentioned that you could have easily have written a book 
about frameworks and applying design in a practical sense. And there are many books, you know, that have done that in the past. And like you said, there's still room for more of them. But you took a bit of a risk here. How close is the final product to the work that you envisioned that you wanted to bring to reality? Like how close to your expectation has been people's response to this book and the impact that it's had on their lives and how they're thinking about design, but also thinking about some of the quite salient social and other uh, racial implications that have been brought to bear in this piece of work. There's definitely always a, a tension in my mind of like wanting to have the book enjoy it by as many people as possible. And on the other extreme, I feel like my job is done if one person if just one person says, you know, this book impacted me, it changed me, and I have more courage, creative confidence, curiosity to move forward in my journey. Like if someone, and I've gotten messages like that, I am so grateful. Like, and just getting those messages on a daily basis or weekly basis, the impact that the book is having because it pivoted to this very personal place, I, I'm over the moon in terms of the resonance and the impact that that has on people. Um, so to answer your question, it's far exceeded my expectations from what I thought would have been a project from the outset. Mm -hmm. People, if you're listening and you want to get uh, just a, a sense of, of what the book is like, I believe you can go to the MIT Press website and there you can read an excerpt. I also know that on Amazon, the book is available and there is an excerpt available there as well. I definitely highly recommend that you, you check it out and we'll be coming back to the book at some point in the rest of this conversation as well. Uh, Kevin, you've worked on nuclear reactors, you've designed Nike shoes, you've been a co-founder of a global design ventures business for a renowned management consultancy, two actually, two of them. How do you think about this journey? Are you a polymath or are you a hard hard worker or are you someone who just knows the, knows how to make the most out of an opportunity or is it simply just good fortune? You know, How do you uh, post-rationalize what this journey has been for you and where it's still going? I think the best answer I can give is that I'm a very curious polymath. What was the saying? Good fortune favors the brave or whatever. I mean, I, I, I'm definitely an imperfect human being. Don't always feel brave at times. But at the same time, I can say I've been in situations where I've wanted to connect the dots in terms of the, understanding the bigger picture and my specific role in that puzzle piece. But many times feeling the resistance of, well, well that's fine. You have those curiosities, but know your place. Play your role. And in a way, indirectly saying, play small, play in terms of how we see you. But again, my curiosity is firing and wanting to connect dots and wanting to go explore and uh, figure out how to, how to investigate larger narratives, larger stories to unearth human possibility and opportunity and all these things. And so that actually leads me to certain convictions that I believe are important, that I'm willing to like follow my sword for, you know, for the sake of wanting to make the right impact on the human condition, on the world, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to keep going with that. So curious polymath, the curiosity will beget definitely the hard work to want to like lean into the fringes, not be afraid to experiment, not be afraid to like lean into the wind of resistance when people are uncomfortable with me doing that. And I'm never going to stop. <laughs> It's so great to hear you say that. And I, I think I probably didn't didn't do Kevin justice when I did Kevin's introduction. You know, you kind of oh. give people a sense of of you know of who's coming on, but didn't really dwell on like just how much intensity you must have had to bring to bear to do and achieve all of the things that you've achieved. And I want to come back to where people begin. 
and where you where you began, Kevin, because I always like to give people a bit of a sense of just what that origin of that journey has been like. You know, you grew up in Downriver, Detroit, and I haven't been to Detroit. I have been to the States, but not to Detroit. And I've heard you describe your upbringing as middle class. Now, I could make some assumptions about what that means, and, and we could go from there, but I don't want to. I, I actually want to ask you about that instead. So when you think about Detroit, Downriver Detroit, growing up, what memory stands out for you that captures what that time was like? You know, I think Downriver Detroit, for those that don't know, it's, it's definitely like the, the southeastern metropolitan sort of region uh, below downtown Detroit. And that was definitely, that area was home to many folks that work in the American automotive industry. So most of the neighbors were factory workers, business folks, engineers supporting these brands. And even within the city that I lived in, you definitely saw the extremes of perhaps the more affluent to the really perhaps destitute. You know, you, you had a wide range from blue collar to white collar. And, you know, we were definitely in a, in a middle class home. Both parents worked very hard to support us three kids. And, you know, we, we definitely had our fair share of resistance where we were reminded quite repeatedly that we were not part of the normal culture of that environment. Uh, so these were predominantly white uh, middle class neighborhoods. And so we, you know, we definitely had a lot of friendships, a lot of good experiences in the school systems and such. Uh, my parents had a lot of friends from all, you know, backgrounds and races. But every so often, you get reminded you're the other, you're the you're the black family in the neighborhood, and some may not feel like they want to welcome us and they want to make that known. And so the innuendos or even the overt slurs in school, the the epithets that you would find in workplaces and institutions like that, you would see that stuff, the graffiti, you would see that stuff. Our home was even, you know, vandalized a few times in the different parts of Michigan where we lived. I understand that at one point you were the only black family living on the street and you recounted, I believe this was in your design at scale talk as well. You recounted being a small child and you've been very kind in how you've described this, but a brick coming through the window of your family home. And I just don't think that many people who aren't people of color have any idea what you've called it resistance. That's a very polite term for it. I don't think we have really any sense of what that weight is like to live with and walk around with and go to school with and go to the workplace with, you know, these were your neighbors. These were people yeah. in your community. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, the brick was one episode. Another was, um, you know, the, the N word being spray painted on the garage door and my father purposely left it up so the neighborhood could see what was capable from their neighborhood, from their own neighborhood. Yeah, I'm speaking broadly here about the West, but we are very good and quick to criticize. And so, so we should as well uphold human rights globally. But we are very quick to forget just what a poor job we have done at home. You know, this, this mm. wasn't 1930s Germany. Mm. This no. was 1970s, <laughs> 80s downtown Detroit. I want to come back to your father. You know, I understand he spent his whole career in merchandising and retail, and he is someone, at least from the very few things that I've heard you say about him, that you have taken some strength from. These are my words, not yours. And you have said about him that he embodied the spirit of the servant leader. How did he do that, and what impact has he had on the man that you now are? Whether it was like memories of sort of take your kid to work day, you know, where you get to shadow your parents and see who their friends are in the workplace and 
And, you know, on a few of those visits to his environment, and these, you know, this was us navigating very large retail department stores, and to see how people responded to my father as he's walking. Of course, he's my number one hero, my first hero, my first example of what a man should be that I was so proud to have that exposure of growing up uh, to someone like him, but to see how people responded to him. It wasn't a situation where he's walking and they were fearing him because of his authority. This was actually the look on their faces, the body language, how they responded to him. They were definitely happy to engage with whatever he was asking them to do, but you could tell that they trusted him, that they were happy to serve him and not him. It was more or less believing in the larger purpose of what he was trying to like create as a runway for them to learn and develop and to be a part of something, part of the success of the store or whatever merchandising opportunity. They, they were about it. They believed in the work. You could feel it. And, and they revered him. They trusted him. They adored him. And I remember as I got a little older, going into my first jobs, he would often say, you, you can't lead anyone unless there's trust first. And you can only build trust by, by serving and supporting your teammate to the left and right of you. Regardless of what their title is, whether they have a white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter. You serve your fellow human being in those moments and you build trust that way. And at some point, you will have opportunities to lead from there. Was your dad someone who also embodies the sense of control and calm that you do? <laughs> he, <laughs> he has more of a humorous, funny personality <laughs> than maybe I would ever have. <laughs> So I think I think humor is his calming sort of calibrator. Yeah. Yeah, he sounds like a, a really, really special guy. He's obviously had a huge impact on you. I want to come to Art Center briefly again now. I watched your Art Center alum profile video, and in that you spoke about having studied mechanical engineering at, at Notre Dame. Now, that's a serious college for people outside of the US that don't know. I believe it's Ivy League or, or very close to. It's certainly up in the stratosphere as far as places you can go. But it w wasn't the choice, this mechanical engineering wasn't the choice that you would have made under different circumstances, was it? You know, I, I, I had uh, creative affinities early on. I drew for hobby. But the idea of becoming a professional artist or a professional designer, that was just thousands of miles away from my worldview, especially in the heart of like automotive country there. And so even though I had creative affinity, I didn't know that I could do that pragmatically. And so the next best choice was, well, I, I think mechanical engineering has some visualization faculty, some drafting aspects to it. I, I know I could draw a little bit there and maybe that's a first point to really dive deep. Mm. It was a pragmatic yeah. choice, though, right? As well, from what I from what I gather, yeah, that's right, right. Less less of a risky choice. Yeah. Were you the first, if not close to the first, in your family to go to college? I uh, know my older brother, three years older. He was the first um, in our core nuclear family to go. Right. Yeah. Did he Did he carry the weight of expectation then, and you were able to sort of <laughs> you were able to sort of get away without that? Yeah, a little bit. He definitely provided some air cover. And, yeah. <laughs> now, when you were a freshman, so you get to this fantastic college, you've, you've obviously got the chops to be there and you're doing your engineering. And I understand that you had some difficulty with, with math and that you spoke with a university advisor about this. What did they tell you to do? Uh, and honestly, it probably was more than just math. It was just um, whether it was math, chemistry, physics, that those early foundational experiences, the learning didn't come as easy as it did 
in high school or, you know, years before. I, I, I honestly remember it was so easy just to get the A's, whether it was memorizing or it was, it was, it just came too easy for me leading up. But when I got to Notre Dame, it was a whole different ball game. And I realized there was deficiencies in how I was truly learning. And when it came time to, you know, visit the freshman advisor with your first round of midterm grades <laughs> and some of those challenges in hand, like not feeling like I was meeting the mark, the, the first uh, position was, well, I'm not sure engineering's for you. Maybe you should go do something else like study business or liberal arts. And at the first sign of challenge, that, that was the counsel. So you didn't hate that advice though, did you? No, I think it, I, I think it ties back to the upbringing, my parents believing in us, inspiring us to really go for our curiosities. And I knew I liked the intersections of math and science and, you know, visualization, whether it's drawing or drafting or 3D work. I knew engineering was speaking to me with, with relevance. I just needed to figure out how to learn in that world, learn better. And I ultimately decided in, in knowing that my, my parents, my family would whisper in my sort of the back of my head, you got to do what it takes to figure this out because you're meant to pursue this. It's, it's meant for you deeply in your core. You just got to figure out how to master the work that's necessary to get on the playing field. What'd you change? Yeah, I think it was doubling down on ensuring that I didn't just like, I didn't just like memorize terms or I didn't just like methodically plow through problem sets that I pushed myself to really understand the material to not just like, not just memorize, but to really learn and master and understand at a deep level how these paradigms were working so that no matter what question it was posed on an exam, I could figure out how to navigate because I knew it that well. I think it was just more of a double or tripling down of mastering the subject matter. It's so telling though, isn't it? It's often something that's lacking for us in our high school educations is that discipline around how to actually think about what it is that we're consuming as, as learners. Totally. Yeah, it's such a key skill. And I, I wonder actually, just kind of going not off topic here, but it sort of occurred to me, I wonder what your father, right, as far as I understand. Yes, uh, my son is 12 years old. Yep. Right, so he, he's at a very important, I mean, every, every age is important, but he's at a critical age, right, where he's about to head off to high school. How do you talk to him about his learning? Like what sort of things are you encouraging him to consider and to think about and, 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 and stance to adopt to his education? Like how active are you in playing that, that guide, you know, that beacon for him for what learning can be? Yeah, we, I think both my wife and I really try to encourage him to, to plan his day so that he's making the most of the time that he has to you know, learn or dive into his assignments to not be you know, sort of reckless with how he spends that time because the details matter. And, and when it comes to learning, like I want him to like definitely not go through the same mistakes that I went through. So I'm always saying it's not enough to just like quickly memorize because he's a, he's a fast like scanner and he can totally like memorize easily a number of terms or a number of ways to calculate a problem. But do you really know it? Do you really understand it? So just sitting with him, coaching him to actually read the full context really appreciate it, really digest it, articulate back before he starts a problem. Like, what do you understand about this? How would you, how would you organize the problem before you start just calculating or attacking it? How would you think about arranging and planning your essay before you actually start writing? So when he does that, he finds that he's actually a lot more efficient and he has more time for fun things because he's been a lot more effective in the, in the homework time. 
Mm. So and retention probably goes up as a result. You know, that role totally. of conversation and question that you're playing, it's such a, it's such a key one, such a key one. So you obviously made it through mechanical engineering. You graduated <laughs> from Notre Dame. I understand you weren't that thrilled with the opportunities that mechanical engineering was presenting you with, at least in, from most companies and in most industries. And then you discovered nuclear energy. What was it about nuclear energy and specifically Westinghouse Electric that made it more attractive than some of the other things that were coming your way? Weirdly enough, in my freshman year, uh, I think it was physics class, there was an excerpt around nuclear power in the physics book. And it talked about long handle tooling and robotics and working with reactors. It was a short excerpt, but that stuck with me. And then when it came time for senior year and all these industries are coming to campus, uh, the typical pitch was, well, you know, to do engineering, you're gonna have to first learn our business. You're gonna have to work on a factory floor under some foreman shuffle inventory or, you know, move carts around, organize things, clean the floor, you know, these kind of things. And maybe after eight years of doing that, we'll start to let you have some real engineering opportunities. It's unbelievable. Now, you've, just come, eight years. <laughs> you've just come out of this wonderful college and this is what they're, they're saying is, is your potential for the next eight years. I can't believe it. Yeah. A lot of industries have this trajectory sort of mapped out of what you're supposed to do. Mm. And meanwhile, uh, the nuclear industry well, I hadn't even thought of since that first sort of moment in freshman year, but I got an email out of the blue. Westinghouse was really bullish around new talent. The industry was actually bullish because they hadn't hired young people coming out of school for like 10 to 15 years prior. So they were facing a knowledge crisis. They were fearing the brain drain of all these engineers retiring. So the door was wide open. Come on in, learn from the best and you know, really get a lot of credible experience early and often. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how, just thinking about that, I don't know how comfortable most people would be knowing that, you know, someone in their early twenties has so much responsibility <laughs> for something that could go so terribly wrong, but clearly you were very capable and people around you and in, in, in that same position did a, did a good job and, and definitely benefits in helping uh, young people come through at the time into an industry that hadn't done its job in terms of recruiting new talent. Uh, being inside a reactor is not a place that many people would voluntarily choose to be. It's probably the last place that most people would want to be. Where did you put your fear? You know, I think, I think definitely from the education, uh, there was a respect for the science. And as long as I understood what was happening, and again, like the expertise was there to really help me understand, aside from the media rhetoric about, around nuclear, like this is actually how things work. Here's, here's, here's where you need to really protect your from harmful exposures. And as long as you do those things, you can actually have a safe, fulfilling career and have no you know, health risk associated with your time in the industry. So a ski day at the top of a mountain might expose you to more radiation from the sun than all of my nuclear career combined. Um, so understanding the science and understanding the facts, I, I got more comfortable with the idea of working in that field. I think I saw a, a photo of you when you were giving a talk where you're in the reactor and I'm, I'm probably not using the right words here, but you're standing there on the framing with some colleagues that's looking down yes. into a reactor, right? And we were, we were over the water surface. Like you, the, literally the reactor is sitting at the bottom of this giant swimming pool, basically. And the water is the shielding agent protecting us from the harmful radiation below. That yeah. blew my mind. <laughs> it's just water in between you and this, this thing that could cause so much destruction to the cells in your body. <laughs> I don't think many people realize like just 
how finely tuned the science is. But I also, you you realized when you got in there and started, you know, being an engineer in this context, that what they'd planned to build and what had actually been built, that wasn't 100% aligned necessarily, was it? Yeah, I mean, uh, every every plant that you enter to perform maintenance, upgrades, whatever, you know, these are architected multi-billion dollar structures. And the drawing sometimes doesn't match exactly what was actually fabricated in reality. So when you come in with a new set of tools, looking to engage componentry that have been there operating 20, 30 years, sometimes things don't fit up exactly as you expect. And you have to anticipate the contingency. So all that just gave me an appreciation of what it takes to deliver on the product promise under mission critical guidelines and really carrying forward the tenets from my my you know mentorship from my father around building trust and working with high performing teams like that was on steroids in that environment. I don't imagine there's many situations in the boardroom that phase you much, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, the the, the practice yeah. with stress is there for sure. <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting a real sense now of where you get your calmness from. You know, having having just recounted that story. You know, thinking about your experience as your polymath, as we were talking about, you've obviously developed your foundation and design and built on that uh, in more recent years in your career. But how do you think the mindset of an engineer, the, the sort of typical engineer, if we can stereotype, compared with, say, your typical designer or people that haven't had training across disciplines in those two things, how do you think that they differ? Whether you believe a designer has a hand in articulating, communicating, visualizing a future state experience that we're creating. We're essentially creating the future. The, the engineer, I think, brings a healthy respect for what is actually feasible. There's an appreciation for how the physical world actually works. Arguably, the same is true on the digital side of things, too, if you're a digital engineer of some sort. But that appreciation of how the world works and being able to unpack existing systems and then connecting that to like how we can reconfigure, reimagine, or translate a different future state. I think that combination is incredibly powerful from my experience. Do you suspect that designers love for the future state and engineers' appreciation for sounded like you said you sounded like you were saying they had a healthy appreciation for reality and what's mm-hmm. possible within the current context? Do you suspect that's that's why engineering and say, digital product-based businesses or services tend to do better uh, with the business than designers do in terms of their ability to connect the value that they provide back with value that the business is trying to drive through the products and services that it's putting out there in the world. Yeah, I think I think perhaps there's less of a, I hate to say the word, but naivete and communicating the hard knocks to the business world. I think engineers have a probably easier time of that. And not being afraid also to speak up to the challenges. Like we have a clear obstacle here. This technology will not work unless we do X, Y, Z. I think the business world will appreciate that sort of answer and work with it versus, oh, you know, there's a dream future state that I've envisioned. Believe me, this is this is more attractive than what you're doing right now. And that's a harder mental jump, I think, for present day stakeholders that are immersed in a short-term reality to deal with. So not necessarily that designers need to completely... Uh, become boring <laughs> or, <laughs> or, you know, completely less weird than they currently are and, and all their, and I am one, so all of our wonderful traits that we have, <laughs> but that we need to develop a bit more appreciation for reality in order to have more influence. Yeah. I almost see it as a bifurcation in our, in our brains. Like, yes, we have to build up our 
our short-term empathy, our pragmatic empathy for what the business needs to do? And how are we actually being subversive with good intent to help the mm. business be more successful? Mm -hmm. But I think that connects to the other side of our brain to say, like, we, we need to dream and come up with compelling visions that pull the business to a better place. And yeah. you, you, you got to have a, a strong North Star that can pull on the business and really challenge it to do better. And I think that imaginative spirit, definitely uh, design is a, probably one of the most important advocates to really craft that story. You built your your business foundation after engineering. You left Westinghouse and went to pursue an MBA at Carnegie Mellon. I got the sense that you got a little bit bored of engineering. I actually loved the product volition, those, those cycles, of, and then looking at the cascade of work and saying, wow, that in five years' time in nuclear, I felt like I got 10 years of credible experiences. So I, there were aspects about it that I really loved. I love working with high-performing teams as well to get stuff done. But... I just felt that engineering trajectories typically plateau. Like if you're a great engineer on a given subject matter expertise, the company is going to want you to do that over and over and over again. And many of my mentors, some of them, they were not rising in the executive ranks. They were just, they were doing the same things for like the last decade or two in some cases. And they were the trusted go-to, but was that enough for me? And meanwhile, my curiosity is wanting to connect the dots to entertain like how as an engineer could I participate in strategic conversations and of course I lack the business acumen to have those conversations but again the curiosities were pulling in that direction yeah 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 so you, you did this MBA and I'm just going to quote you now because you said something really interesting about your experience there so here's the quote you said I'll be honest the business school environment while it was rewarding to step into a two-year career refresh there were a lot of voices. Mm. You went on to suggest that you felt like your inner voice was dying or at least being drowned out a little and that there was a lot of career pressure that came mm. on for smart people like you to go into banking and finance. How did you know that that trajectory wasn't the trajectory for you? I think while I respected the subject matter of learning the business acumen from finance, accounting, all, all these different lenses that I was experiencing for the first time, I, I found value in that. But when I started talking with companies in recruiting conversations, I could tell maybe that that trajectory that they were envisioning, the career pathing that they foresaw for candidates like me, it, it just wasn't resonating. It wasn't pulling my heartstrings. And I, honestly, some of those interviews, I could tell that the person across the table probably sensed that, that I wasn't completely convinced that that was right for me either. In those conversations, it kind of came out, the truth would come out. So I, I, I think, thankfully, it might have taken a year and a half into the two years, but I started to listen to my gut a little bit more and say, like, what kind of companies have environments that blur the boundaries a bit, allow more entrepreneurial thinking, allow me to leverage who I was before the MBA and what I might want to learn moving forward that's beyond the MBA. And it was companies like Nike and Apple and those kind of companies came into the mix. Yeah. And I understand you had a very pivotal moment at a career fair <laughs> yes. where Nike was kind of hiding out in the back corner and you came, you came across them and you walked up to the guy and how did that conversation go? <laughs> yeah, it was one of those, uh, it was a national black MBA conference. You can imagine like hundreds of booths, thousands of would be candidates hoping to get conversations with companies. And hilariously, the Nike booth was one of the smallest booths there and the swoosh was probably no larger than my smartphone. It was like so tiny. <laughs> <laughs> I 
but it was like Nike's here. And I just kind of went off into a corner and just got, got myself together before I approached that booth and said, like, I know that they're tired of hearing from all these thousands of candidates. Oh, my favorite athlete is XYZ person. And I want to work for your brand so badly. That's not going to sell the person that there's any resonance. But I thought about my story, like, hey, I come from, I came from a product universe in engineering. I want to add this business layer, but I also want to go in an environment where there's this creative sort of collision happening as well. And maybe there's a mutual win-win of mutual learning that could be had. So let me articulate that storyline to the person. And when I did, and it, he, he was like, when I first walked up, he was like, not saying hello, nice to meet you, not extending his hand. The first thing he said was, why Nike? Very gruff, very to the point. Because you could tell he was tired of the same. Yeah, yeah, having the same conversation 400 times. <laughs> yeah, it just read on this whole person, like he was tired of it. And after I made my sort of two-minute pitch, he handed me his business card and like, Let, let's just keep in touch. And I was so grateful for that moment. And sure enough, I, I touched base with him every quarter, let him know what I was working on, asking about his realities as well. And he eventually offered me an opportunity to interview with him. It went pretty well, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, can't complain. I'm very thankful that he gave me that opportunity. You started in a business capacity, but that didn't last very long. Yeah, I started as a business planner, typical MBA job, <laughs> supporting investor relations, wrestling with the financial and operational realities of different business segments. But meanwhile, I was networking, Nike being the collegial culture that it was. It was common to have coffee chats. One person will kick you to two more people to have coffee with. And that led me to meeting a lot more product folks over time and Eventually, turn those coffee chats into stretch assignments to show people what I was made of. What, if we don't, if I don't ask you this, people aren't going to get a true sense of what a what a stretch this assignment was for you to go from mm. being an MBA uh, business role into, as I mentioned in, in your intro, designing award winning or record breaking sa sales uh, level shoes. Right, like this is again, it's easy to gloss over this stuff, but just what kind of extra effort on top of your regular day job? were you putting in to secure this opportunity? I think that's the first big meaty stretch assignment was with the Jordan brand. I met Dwayne Edwards. It was one of those, like, he gave me half hour of his time, you know, and he saw, he saw that I was hungry. I was curious. Uh, he saw the, the rough drawings I would do for hobby. I was still drawing for hobby, you know, for my whole life. And he, he saw some of that stuff and he said, yeah, you actually have some raw creative skill. He's like, if you want... I'll give you a chance. I have too many briefs, not enough designers. If you if you meet me in the mornings, so he was like one of the hardest working people I remember in the Nike environment. Uh, we would meet together at six in the morning in his office, commiserate. We would go do our day jobs. And then I'd work on his stuff to the wee hours at night. And at like two or three in the morning, and then six in the morning the next day, roll in, show him what I achieved. And he was giving me hard feedback, like what worked, what didn't work, what I needed to go redo. And then he started um, inviting me into the into the product reviews, the design reviews with the Jordan team, which is very intimidating. When they were looking to review my shoe, you know, my my design proposals, meekishly sliding my sketches across the table for this room full of people to like lean over and see, was extremely intimidating. But I had his support. I got the right feedback. I would come in consistently with new rounds of iteration, and all of a sudden, my shoes are part of the line plan. And eventually my shoes did really well when they launched in those seasons. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that he gave me that opportunity. Do you still speak with him? Yeah, we're, we're friends to this day. Consider still, I consider him still to be a mentor. We're always supporting each other's ambitions. Now that he's beyond Nike, he's now 
uh, doing great things with Pencil, now Pencil Lewis College. But we're big supporters of each other for sure. Does he still give you hard feedback? <laughs> He's a very honest friend and mentor for sure. Yeah. Uh, the best the best kind, the best kind. <laughs> you made this leap, right? But it, it wasn't smooth sailing. I've heard you say something else and I'll quote you again now. You said, for every one person that gave me the time of day, I had 99 people saying, you're a numbers guy. We just don't see you playing over here. What are you doing? Why did you refuse to accept the limitations that other people were placing on you and your potential? You know, if I'm honest, I probably did listen to some of them in the early outset. When you first hear that feedback, it's difficult to swallow. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe this, maybe they're right. This isn't for me. But then it's like Dwayne has me uh, coming back to his office the next morning. I still need to show up and satisfy Dwayne's requests. And then the Jordan work opened up other doors where I was, was able to help other uh, Nike uh, categories. And that work wasn't supposed to, that work still needed to be done. And I was able to produce the evidence that satisfied the stakeholders' requests and people were happy with my work. So all of a sudden, I'm feeling that I could create the evidence necessary to, to convince myself that I can do this ultimately. And I think also, as we mentioned earlier, the convictions, when you see evidence like that, the convictions get stronger. And then also outside of Nike, I'm seeing the world change to really embrace the intersections between design, business, and technology. You know, Apple was coming on the scene hot and heavy with its ecosystem, physical iPod, software, iTunes universe. And I saw a little bit of myself in this growing convergence and the convictions just kept getting stronger and stronger, where it's like, you know what, I I know I'm supposed to do this. I just can't help but think back to that same conversation or the similar conversation you were having with your advisor at uh, at Notre Dame. (laughs) Right. There's a bit of a, a bit of a theme building here. People, if you're paying attention, you, you might have picked up on this. So, you know, you left a wonderful job at Nike, you know, again, kind of like you've got this history of almost being restless with your yeah. own curiosity and wanting to take things to that next level. And you went to art, went to art center where you did your master's. And it was an industrial design master's of science, as far as I can tell. And you're now on the art center board, right? Like this is a top tier prestigious design school in in, in the world, but you know, definitely in America. And in its 90 year history, there have only been 300 black alumni. And that puts you in rarefied company. Considering that art center graduates, or at least appears to graduate 300 students or so a year, what does that mean? Uh, you know, it definitely is sobering when you realize it's that little traction when it comes to diverse candidates coming through the pipeline. It says that there's a problem uh, for diverse folks to see Art Center as a viable avenue for them. You know, again, it could be sort of deemed as very exclusive and almost like a, you know, conservatory on top of the hill that's unreachable, it's unattainable. So there, there, there says there's there's a lack of messaging to young kids in school systems that design could be for them. And yes, you could actually make it if you work hard, you could make it at a place like Art Center. But unfortunately, those narratives aren't cascading down to everyday folks, especially marginalized folks in those neighborhoods. Um, also, you know, unfortunately, there's still just a dismally low re- representative population of practicing designers out there, too. So you know, the, those young people are not seeing examples of themselves mirrored in the marketplace either, which is also very sobering and disappointing as well. You have previously criticized the field of design, and I'll quote you again now, saying, 
design has an ivory tower problem, the existing and most celebrated pedagogies have been articulated and codified by a very privileged few. It's not a reflection of that beautiful tapestry that is the world and its full diversity. Now, as designers, we like to think of ourselves as being inclusive, right? This is perhaps a blind spot for us, like a big blind spot. And I touched on the, and I think you have in the past as well, I think you were probably even involved in it, that AIGA census, the last design census that came out. Now, the, the, the figure that stuck with me and that I mentioned in my talk at Design at Scale is that only 3% of the designers, the 9,500 designers that responded to that, identified as black. And I then looked at the U.S. census, the general census, and the black population in the states is roughly twelve and a half percent. That's right. That's that's a that's a magnitude, like that's a magnitude of difference away from just having representation at the level of the general population. Have we got a problem here in design? Do we have a massive blind spot that no matter what our rhetoric is that we're just failing to address? You know, how can we reconcile such a massive gap? You know, it's, it is it is an appalling blind spot. And unfortunately, it's taken events like the summer of George Floyd and all the jarring overt stuff that colored our last couple of years, even though the Black community has been saying these things for centuries. So again, like we're, we're in a, w- a wave of awareness right now, arguably, last couple of years. But I think it was fine for the design industry to say, oh, it's fine. I'm inclusive because I'm designing for these people. Whether I'm designing shoes or blenders or microwave ovens for these people, I'm designing for them. And there's a, there's a myopic attitude there, a lack of humility to say, do you really know what those folks need? Or are you just like shoving products for them to consume? You only care about them as consumers, which essentially makes you sort of a scientist with a clipboard studying people like lab rats. You're not really empathizing. You have no compassion. You're not meeting them at their level. You're not inviting them into the party to cook and co-create. You're, and even designing with isn't enough because still I can, I can claim to co-create and immerse with you, but I, then I'm going to go right back into my I'm being facetious when I say this. I can hop into my Porsche and go back to the office, into my bubble again, and make decisions without those people. So why can't our future state teams actually mirror the world in terms of representation so that we actually have authentic people that are representative of those communities speaking for those communities or bringing the team back into those communities where they came from to really engage in an authentic way versus a lot of the resistance that I felt where the prestigious design firms might look at me as a candidate, I'm not sure this is for you, or you don't you don't look like my design studio. You're not wearing the the black turtleneck the way that we wear it, you know, or you're not listening to the music that we listen to and who we'd like to go have beers with after work. Like you're you're kind of different. We're not are sure. They, are these inferred or are these explicit explicitly said to you? Combination of both, and it's not just me. It's also my black peers in the industry where we've found design through weird atypical paths, and we share notes with each other. I hesitate to say this, but you're now part of the ivory tower. <laughs> what are you doing from within its walls at Art Center and more broadly through the influence that you have in the field? You're on a, on a number of other boards and initiatives here. What are you? What mountains are you trying to move here and how, how are you doing that? It's funny, um, my friend, Dr. John Maida, <laughs> 
sort of tapped me one day and, and said, you know, you have to remember like Muhammad Ali didn't just tear down the world of boxing to make a name for himself. And then ultimately to become a beacon for all things, social injustice, the activism that his platform represented in a, in a corrupt world of boxing. He was able to navigate to the very top of that and then use his influence in a major powerful way. So part of me believes in, you know, there's a lot of things that need to be tore down and built back up again, reimagined completely er radically in some cases. But at the same time, I also know pragmatically that there's certain platforms, infrastructure, precedents that are going to take a long time to unwire. And so while those platforms are actually so intertwined in our everyday makeup, learning how to navigate them, to create space, to advocate for those hidden voices, to create opportunities. I'm a big believer that I can't just do my job. And if I'm the only one in the room, that means I failed. But I, I need to be conscious of like, who can I bring along with me? What communities can I be a part of to show them the work that I'm a part of or you know, shine a light on other people doing great work so that they can see that. And let's share it with each other. Let's actually practice some eminence so that we can learn from each other and realize that we're not alone in this journey. And then let's go shine a light and provide mentorship and exposure to the next generation that's coming up, watching all of us as examples. Do you think that most companies see diversity as a social problem that needs to be solved or as a risk to their profit and loss that needs to be managed? I sort of see it maybe along the, the tiers of, Number one, I honestly, I hope, I hope to believe that the large part of our humanity, our, our human collective cares about doing the right thing and they, they want to feel like they're invested in that pursuit. But to our earlier arguments, um, the business world has a huge appalling blind spot in this regard. And you're already late. I would say that to most industries, you're already late. And that, that blind spot that you have is now actually eroding and risking your business because people's value criteria is constantly changing. And especially over the last couple of years, it's changed overnight in some cases. And you're already late to be able to respond to demographics that are gonna be very important to your bottom line moving forward. And they don't wanna just be a lab rat or a consumption engine for your business. They wanna know that you're in it for their benefit, for their well-being. And if you're not able to prove that, I think people are waking up to these realities and sharing receipts with each other. I can get on Twitter and see what your employees are saying about the insides of your company quicker than you think. I can see what your customers are saying about your brand faster than you think to get an assessment of how truly committed you are or if you're just doing lip service and being very performative. And unfortunately, most companies fall into the performative category, if we're honest. Companies are often held up as our beacons of innovation and contrasted against government as I suppose, the, the laggards when it comes to change. Yet, listening to you describe the current state, it very much sounds like the corporate world is being responsive and has been caught with its pants down with regard to such an important social change that is, is, is undergoing and that we are, we're currently living through. Mm -hmm. It almost, to me, I mean, I don't know how you think about this, which is why I'm going to get to a question in a second, but like, just how alarming is it that unless we see the events that we saw in 2020 and had been happening for, let's be honest, had been happening for forever mm -hmm. since before that as yeah. well, that were just being willfully, willfully ignored. Yes. What does it say about our institutions, corporate or otherwise, 
that it takes something so graphic and so unignorable mm -hmm. and so wrong for us to respond? Why does it take that which we all saw and still is burnt into our brains before people start to really take action? Unfortunately, the, the precedent is about that desire to win at all costs. Win in terms of, call it greed, call it the supremacist notion of wanting to win at all costs at the expense of human beings. And I, I say that not from the overt stuff. I say that more from the covert stuff of like, you're, you're, you're fine not listening to large swaths of people that represent our makeup of society. You're fine, you know, driving into a path of privilege and re while realizing that, you, you know, several miles away, there might be someone experiencing a case of police brutality because it doesn't affect your world. You're fine being a part of an engine that's going to satiate your desire for wealth and dominance and supremacy. So unfortunately, I think even since 2020, like there's been a boomerang back where this is 2022. You don't see as much corporate energy around these issues, even though it was so graphically depicted in 2020, where a lot of companies were saying things and you hardly see any of that. So we're almost in this like boomerang cycle of a reversion of a hesitancy to talk about that stuff anymore. And in some cases, some companies have doubled down on the opposite position. Oh, we don't, we, that, that's political talk. We don't discuss political stuff at work. Don't bring your full self to work. We only want your work self. And it's like, no, this is not politics. 2020 was about right or wrong. Human condition, violation of someone's humanity several times over. And you don't want to talk about that stuff. You don't want to have an open conversation with the people that are clearly being affected by these continuing acts of tragedy and how they have to swallow that and come into work every day. You're telling people to stop talking about those things. So all that to say is that I think we have these cycles of boomeranging where it's like performance, performance, I'm sorry. We have the cycle of performative behavior followed by resistance to dealing with some of these issues. And over and over again, we go. You know, there's a word for that behavior of avoiding engaging in this topic that comes to mind for me, and that's cowardice. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Are the hierarchies that we create in our endeavors, whether they be in government or through business, are they effectively creating a zero-sum game here? You know, do people, and I mean particularly white people in the West, do we have to start acting against our own self-interest and proactively give up our seats? Is that the solution? Is it that drastic? Or is there something that I'm not seeing? and that people aren't seeing as a way of actually addressing this fundamental social problem mm. that we have created and continue to perpetuate? Yeah, I think as you characterize that question, I, I definitely see in my mind two ends of the spectrum, you know, zero-sum game clearly, or a flourishing of opportunity for everyone. And I, I definitely, I'm definitely of the camp that leans to, there's a latent opportunity to really flourish where we can all benefit. If we open our eyes and say, like, how do we mirror the marketplace, mirror this mosaic of humanity, ensure that our teams are representative, that we allow people to bring their whole selves to their organizations that they're a part of, and that we'll, we'll be less, less biased, we'll have less blind spots, we'll create enormous business opportunity if we 
do that. Hopefully a responsible, respectful opportunity at that, right? You know, in, in the short term, though, as part of a strategy to eventually get there, you know, if if I'm a corporation, my whole sea level is in the couple layers below that sea level are all white males, for example, you might have to make some concessions to say, this is just a mismatch or mismatched and we need to fix it. And there might need to be some you know, short-term interventions that are perhaps painful to navigate in, in, in the, for, the need of, for the need of inspiring bold change. That might be uncomfortable for some people. So I think we have to reckon with that as well. That was Kevin, that was a very diplomatic answer, <laughs> suggesting that it's both. It's both. Both, both of these things need to I happen. So. And much more towards the compelling vision of the future that you painted with greater opportunity f- for everyone. But I suppose my concern, if that is the only, not criticism of your vision, I think it's a wonderful vision and definitely where, where we should be heading. But I can certainly see people becoming complacent with with that if that is the only thing yeah. that is that is in their mind that's right you know wouldn't it be nice one day if mm-hmm. it'd be very easy to ignore the reality on the ground currently yeah. you know the work that has been done in some corporates you know we, t- we you were talking about how there was sort of more leaning into this issue around 2020 and perhaps we're boomeranging a little bit away from it currently as as the the lens has gone on what's going on in Ukraine and you know the media sort of shifts where it puts its attention right but the work that has been going on at the big end of town so our big multinationals our corporate end in business do you see this as work that has been striking at the branches or at the root of the issue i unfortunately i think the the majority of observation skews toward the branches Who's, who's going to be bold enough to say, you know, as a, as a corporation, how are they feeding into some of the systemic paradigms, the systemic threads of inequities? Like, you know, what, what political movements are they actually endorsing with their deep pockets? Fine. Don't bring your whole self to work. You know, that's politics. Let's not go there. But completely ignoring the millions, if not billions of dollars that get poured into lobbying Washington mm-hmm. and every year by corporates. Yep. And, and, and what fueled... Some of the balance sheets of some of these companies and from their very start, the, the very origin story of a lot of these multinational corporations, did it have ties to slavery? Yeah, you're going to make a lot of people very uncomfortably and rightfully mm-hmm. so. It's easy for us to look at corporates and we should. We should look at them very closely and we should scrutinize their behavior and their origins and what they're doing and what they're not doing. And again, I, I talked to you about this off air. So I come from New Zealand. I live in New Zealand. I'm a white guy that lives in New Zealand. I'm not on the ground in America. I don't have a front row seat in the American play that's being played at the moment on stage, right? I'm not there. But what I do wonder is we have our own issues in New Zealand, which I won't go into because it's not the focus of today. But how much of this is is actually way more fundamental than our expressions as as humans and the corporates and the organizations that we create and more about the the way in which we govern ourselves and that we have chosen to legislate and live in community or not with one another. Like how much of this is actually the root of this, this problem that we, we have, how much of this is actually a result of our failure? Mm. To govern ourselves in a way that works for all people. Yeah, I think whether it's the corporate arena or like how governments have been wired to 
ideally serve their people. Mm. The wiring is so incestuous with each other, with either side now, and even through history. But, you know, we're, we're a country, if I speak for the United States, we're a country that has never really dealt with the nation's original sin and how the institution of slavery has affected nearly every single institution, policy, mandate, law. Um, now, granted, certain rights have been bestowed over time, but there hasn't been a full appreciation of the original sin, nor uh, respect for the th how deeply the threads go down to the root system <laughs> of what has informed many of the spaces being the way they are by their design, by their initial design. You know, we talk about founding fathers. We, we hold them up all the time for the initial genius that was deemed to be the American promise, but it wasn't for everyone. And, and many of those same you know, authors were participating in the institution of slavery. So until we're honest about those things, I think, unfortunately, these paradigms will continue and corporations will have free license to continue to participate in these engines and act in their own best or self-interest without, again, to your earlier point, addressing the root. It's, it's just performative stuff on the branches. I want to bring this back down to to you and your experience now, because I know that this informed a lot of what reimagining design was about. You spoke a number of times in the past about not seeing very many people that look like you in the lanes in which you've been swimming, even at Nike, right? Like this is the thing. Now, this actually really got to me because I, you, you said even at Nike, when you think of Nike, its sponsorship of black athletes and how active it has been in getting its voice out there on this, on this issue, even at Nike, you were one of, of a few. And you've said, and I'll quote you again now, you've said, it just frustrates me that I don't see more of me, of people of color in design and innovation. Has being surrounded by people who by and large aren't black, so probably people that look quite like me, to be honest, forced you to make unfair compromises? You know, have you had to hide part of yourself in order to fit in with the, the other people that you've predominantly been working with? Uh, no, absolutely. I, um, as I remember those experiences, there was a, an emotional tax and emotional labor on top of the work itself where I, I was always conscious of, I'm clearly different in this room. How, what do I have to do to make this room feel comfortable with me? And then when we're all trying to contribute equally around the table, I, I, I just noticed that whether subconsciously or consciously, most of the reaction I would get to any contribution was very like, oh, I, I didn't understand what he said. But someone would say the exact same thing five seconds later, and they, they would latch onto that as if it was a great contribution. And it, it was just like, there's so many, there were so many episodes like that. Every single meeting, there was always that psychological warfare of just being heard, just being seen, just feeling like I was a, an equal contributor and feeling welcome to do so. And I remember you know, many personalities that were just like, they, were, they, they had their mind made up before I could say anything, that they were gonna be my, they were gonna be my detractor. They were gonna be my protagonist just because of who I was in the room. And that was the experience for many of my black peers where they, we just found it difficult to where we, 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 were, we were being tolerated, we weren't being included. You know, not just Nike, but uh, if we use them as an example, I mean, their success is orbiting around black culture as the engine. And you know, to not see it represented up high 
is um, still disappointing. I, 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 of course, have fondness for the brand. I have still mentors and advocates that I keep in touch with there. But I'm still uh, just emotionally disappointed because there, there hasn't been the level of traction that I would like to see in that organization. This awareness that you've had, that you've just talked about, of being the only, of being not seen, you know, of having your great ideas stolen and then five seconds later put forward by someone else as if they were their own. Have you always been conscious of this or is this something that you've become more aware of in recent years? I think it's funny. In my first chapter in engineering, I think maybe it was harder to gamify and, and provide a layer of BS on, on top of such critical work that was very black and white. Yeah. It, it either works yeah. or doesn't work. And you were lauded as an engineer, your ability to make things work safely and respectfully. Like if you did those things, the organization rewarded us. That's what I felt in my first career chapter. When I, when I got into the Nike arena, it was remarkably different. It was sort of black court basketball. It was elbowing. You're showing up to a meeting. It was almost like, who's your gang of advocates and who are the bullies? And how do you like gamify and navigate versus like just speaking to the work itself? You know, that, that extra energy that was required just got so taxing after a while. And I, don't, and I think a lot of it, even though like I'm, I'm all about, you know, competitive organizations trying to like do the best work that they can possibly, but sometimes some of that stuff, it, it, it provides an excuse for the bias that sits underneath or the ignorance or the prejudice or the racism. And some of that is just noise that's from people being selfish about their own self-interest and not really helping the company move forward. So again, we, we, this behavior feeds into the myopic tendencies and the blind spots that are ever so beleaguering what's possible for these companies. You're a parent. How do you talk about these issues with your son? You know, how do you explain to him what your experience has been like or what, what's going on for him that he may be experiencing, why it's happening mm -hmm. and what it all means? You know, what, what are you saying to him about this world in which he is, you know, just about to, to become a young man in? You know, I, when he was maybe like nine or 10, I was anticipating having a, a long sit down conversation about a lot of these issues, but honestly, it's been a series of micro conversations to warm up his senses to the fact that, you know, you're navigating a society that is designed in a certain way that isn't always in your best interest. It's not always going to be supportive of you, but you need to understand where you are, who your family is, what our values are. And what we believe, we, we believe in your infinite potential. You can do anything as long as you apply your mind and hard work to it. But, you know, having to have micro conversations around, like when you walk the dog with me and if, if, if a policeman rolls up, here's how we behave, right? Like having to have those difficult conversations or when the class that might be predominantly white, when they gang up on you because of your appearance, like they, they were, there was an episode where they made fun of his hair because it's curly, you know, um, they, they, that was his first moment of feeling the pig pile of all these kids ganging up on him because of his appearance and it, him having to like work through his tears to deal with that. And then reminding him that, you know, you can have big dreams, but to make those dreams a reality, the conduct that we have to have versus what he sees out of his peers and how they talk to their parents, how they deal with authority figures, you can't behave like that because you're going to invite a whole host of this other stuff that you don't know exists, but it, it truly does exist. And you got to be prepared to know that that's there 
And so the conduct that we have has to be different, has to be of a higher standard. So these are the micro conversations that we're always having in the house. I'm just going to leave that there. I think that's something that everyone listening to should have a think about and reflect on. Now, Kevin, I, I know that we spoke before we jumped on today about concluding our conversation with a passage that you feel from your book is important for our audience to hear and that time has arrived. Right. So when you're ready, take us away. Okay. I'm going to read um, the first paragraph from chapter eight, which I call Mirroring Our Diversity, Reflections for Our Future. Reimagining design speaks to how design transformed my life and how lessons I've learned can provide useful perspectives for individuals and organizations. Individuals will hopefully get a sense that it's fine to mull over that career change or follow through on where that burning curiosity might lead them. In a converging world where business, creativity, technology, broader ecologies, and social justice intersect, everyone will undoubtedly touch design in some way. Whether you're a designer, product manager, or engineer, we should all have an appetite to break down the silos that prevent us from communicating, collaborating, and garnering strategic alignment together. Organizations will imagine how to leverage design more strategically than before. This will take investment in design while carving out bandwidth for teams to collaborate in multidisciplinary ways. This is true whether we are carving out a part-time capacity to explore new growth or ring-fencing a dedicated innovation group. I offer these perspectives merely as starting points for every reader to customize and make real in their own complex environments. I have full confidence you will make the necessary connections between these perspectives and the realities within your organizations. Let's be honest, breaking existing paradigms is challenging, but totally worth it when you make the commitments for yourself, your teams, and your broader organization. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for such a wonderful, wide-ranging and, and truly meaningful and deep conversation today. I really appreciate your contribution to the field and continued contributions, no doubt, and, and everything that you've done and brought to this, this conversation with me today. Oh, thank you for uh, this, this wonderful conversation. I really appreciate where you took things and uh, that, that, that requires boldness and courage on your part. So thank you for being a, a new friend and an ally in the cause. You're most welcome, Kevin. My pleasure. Kevin, if people want to get in touch with you, learn more about what you're doing with Dreams Design and Life, find out about reimagining design, what are the best ways or way for them to do that? Uh, so for Dreams Design and Life, it's just dreamsdesignandlife.com. Or for the book, I have an author website that points to all things that I'm working on around the book, uh, but Kevin Bethune hyphen reimagining design. I heard that there might be another book in the works. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm in the final phases of getting the draft manuscript for book two done. It's due by the, uh, the end of this month. So that is the new goal. <laughs> well, we better hop off this call then and <laughs> you better get back to writing. <laughs> hey, thanks, Kevin. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Kevin and all of the great things we've spoken about. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review. They're really helpful. Subscribe to the podcast and also share it with someone who you feel would get value from these conversations. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn, just search 
search for Brendan Jarvis and I'll come up. Or there's a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes. Or you can head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!